Well, last week, we studied verse by verse through Romans chapter 14. And it was all about gray areas or Christian liberties. You see, in Paul's day, Christians struggled with questions like, should I eat meat? Or should I celebrate Jewish holidays? Or should I drink wine? And regarding these, the Bible does not command us either way. The Bible gives us freedom to choose. God's word is clear. We're commanded to love God, but it doesn't tell us to celebrate God more on certain days or every day. God's word is also clear that we're commanded not to get drunk, but the Bible does not prevent a Christian from alcohol. In Romans chapter 14, we learn that these are examples of freedoms in Christ and that godly men and women fall on both sides of these issues back in Paul's day. And today, we've got an unending number of gray areas. And again, today, godly men and women fall on both sides of these gray areas. And God accepts them both, whether they eat meat or they don't, so long as they honor God in their choice. However, we also read last week in Romans chapter 14, in verse 3, Paul says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. You see, if we take our personal conviction on a gray area and we put it on others, then now we're sinning because we're becoming their master, telling them what's right and what's wrong. Only Jesus can command us. Then last week we saw Paul take it a step further. He told us in Romans chapter 14, verse 15, he said, Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, meaning if you eat meat but they don't, and you invite them over for dinner and you eat meat in front of them and you're grieving them, well, Paul says, you're no longer walking in love. You're grieving your brother over food. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And so Paul says we're commanded not just to receive those who disagree with us on Christian liberties, but we're to love them by willingly sacrificing our freedom when we're around other Christians who struggle with that issue. For example, let's imagine that you have a friend who maybe used to be an alcoholic. It would be loving of you to not drink alcohol around that friend so as not to tempt them. However, Romans 14 went beyond that. It wasn't just for those friends that used to be alcoholics. You see, loving your brother also applies if you have a friend who's never struggled with alcohol before. They just feel personally that they don't feel comfortable drinking alcohol. They don't have any baggage in their past from an alcoholic father or family member. They just think alcohol is wrong for them. And Paul says, even for that friend, You shouldn't drink alcohol around them because you're putting them first. You're putting them before your freedom for the purpose of loving them and loving God. If you have questions about these gray areas and Christian liberties and how godly Christians disagree, I encourage you to check out last week's message on our website. But we have so many different freedoms in Christ in all different areas And yet last week, we didn't have time to discuss the other side of the coin. You see, last week was all about how Christian liberties relate to others. 
But we didn't talk about how Christian liberties relate to us personally. Perhaps there can be good reasons why you choose to limit your personal freedom. And that's why I've called today's message, When Freedoms Become Folly. Today's going to be a little different. You know, usually we go verse by verse through a chapter or a big chunk of Scripture. But today I wanted to take a step back and say, well, Lord, when can my rights, when can my freedoms, when can my gray areas actually become wrong and unwise in your sight? And so here's our first one for today. If you want to take notes, it's your first fill in the blank on your note sheet. It says, my freedom becomes folly when it leads me into temptation. My freedom becomes folly when it leads me into temptation. We'll use that example of alcohol since I already brought it up. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So God's word is clear. He does not want us to get drunk. Getting drunk is a sin. But to have a beer or a glass of wine, that's a gray area, a Christian liberty. However, for you personally, if you cannot moderate your drinking, if you're tempted to keep drinking, then it would be foolish of you to say, well, I'm just going to have a beer, knowing deep down that it's probably going to be a case. Well, you need to recognize for you personally, that's foolishness. You shouldn't put yourself in that temptation. Maybe for you personally, you can't go to a bar. Is it a sin to eat at a bar? No. Is it a sin to get a drink at a bar? No. Is it a sin to get drunk anywhere? Yes. And so you see, for you personally, maybe there's certain freedoms that you need to forsake. Maybe there's certain friendships that you need to avoid. Or you know where you can't hang out with those friends. You see, we each need to seek the Lord on what we're free to do and what freedoms we might need to sacrifice. I like to imagine that God's commands are like a cliff. They're like a cliff. If we break His command, we sin because we've crossed that line. We got too close and we fell off the edge. We gave in to temptation. For example, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the act of having sex outside of marriage, God says, Jesus says, that's a sin. But Jesus takes it a step further. He says, even to look at somebody with lust is a sin. You're committing adultery in your heart. Now, lust can be defined as dwelling on a desire that you cannot righteously fulfill. Okay, so right now, if you're just like, man, I can't wait to go eat a sandwich, you know, like, that's okay. You're just freeing Christ to eat sandwiches, right? You, you can, you know, hopefully not dwell on that too much, but that's okay. But if you're dwelling on a desire that you cannot righteously fulfill, well, now you've entered into the sin of lust. And as we know, the billion-dollar industry of pornography is all about lust. 
that's what it's for, and they know that it hooks our flesh. But even without pornography, even without movies or TV, we can still be guilty of lust by dwelling on a desire that we cannot righteously fulfill. Now, regarding the adulterous woman, the adulterous and immoral woman, we're told in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, practical application of how can we be wise in God's eyes. And so here we're told that it's wise to not even go near the adulterous woman. Notice that in our picture of the cliff, the cliff edge is still adultery and or lust. Those are clear black and white sins in Scripture. But this proverb challenges us to put up some extra fences for our safety. One fence is, do not go near her house. The other fence is, stay far away from her. Is it a sin to go near her house? Well, no. Is it wise? No. It's foolish. And therefore, your next fill in the blank, on any specific command in Scripture, it might be wise to add a personal fence. A personal fence. If you decide that for you personally, you shouldn't have social media because the pictures and the advertisements, they lead you to lust. Well, you're recognizing that we're free in Christ to have social media or not. But for me, I recognize this leads me in the temptation. And so I'm going to maybe get rid of it. Jesus says in Matthew 5:29 and 30, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If for you personally, social media or whatever, you fill in the blank, if that thing leads you in the temptation... It's not worth having. It's not worth having. You're humbly recognizing that you are a sinner and that you personally cannot enjoy this particular freedom without being led into temptation. But notice two things about this example. First, as we learned last week in Romans 14, we cannot enforce this personal fence on others. If you are led into temptation through some freedom, you can't say, okay, it's wrong for me, it's wrong for you too. That's not how it works. In fact, Jesus says, now you're in sin. You can't do that. We should not look down on those Christians who might have social media. I'm just using social media as an example. You know that, right? Okay. Nor should we puff ourselves up in pride and say, well, I haven't had Facebook in years. I'm pretty spiritual. Well, great. Good for you. But that's not what we're talking about. We don't use these liberties to have or not have as an act of judging others or being prideful in ourselves. The second thing I want us to notice about this example is that we talked last week about feeling convicted about a gray area. Again, going back to the idea of alcohol. There are godly men and women who, again, have no baggage or anything with 
alcohol, and yet for them, they just think it's wrong to drink alcohol. In fact, if they tried to take a sip because you showed them in the Bible that we're free in Christ, just don't get drunk, and they took a sip, their conscience condemns them and convicts them. Well, for that person, it is wrong because their conscience convicts them. And so, you might not feel convicted about having social media or not. This is not a matter of conscience, but it's a matter of recognizing this is a freedom in Christ. I don't feel bad for having it, and yet I still recognize this thing, social media in this example, leads me into temptation. So even though I don't feel condemned about social media, I don't feel convicted about it, in fact, I'm going to miss it, I'm recognizing it's not worth having for me personally because I'm led into lust and temptation. And so you see, it's just unwise for me. I'm going to willingly lay down my right for the sake of drawing nearer to God. You see, we all need to seek the Lord. That's a given. But we should seek the Lord specifically in these gray areas. Spend time in prayer saying, Lord, search my heart. Reveal my temptations that I'm struggling with. And Lord, beyond that, reveal what things in my life might be leading me into temptation. What things in my life are causing me to stumble. Ask the Lord to reveal any fences that you might need to set up personally in your life so that you don't live foolishly. But remember these two things. First, never confuse man's fences with God's cliffs. Never confuse man's fences with God's cliffs. It's dangerous. You see, let's imagine that God said, don't touch this music stand. Okay? It will electrocute you. Don't touch it. Okay? Now, I love my kids. So if God said that, then I would tell my kids, kids, you're not allowed on the stage. You can't even get on the stage. In fact, don't even look at the music stand. Now, those are my rules. God's rule was just don't touch the music stand. But here's the problem. If my kids confuse my rules with God's rules, then they're probably going to end up looking at the music stand. You know, don't look, don't look. <gasps> there it is. And when they look at it, they don't get shocked. And then they might cautiously creep up the steps onto the stage. And when they do, they realize, it's kind of cool up here. And I feel great. And then as they reach out and they touch the stand, they get shocked. Because they've confused my rules with God's rules. You see, when we confuse man's fences with God's cliffs, we can actually set ourselves and others up for failure. Because when people cross our rules and our fences, and everything's fine, they think, well, maybe I can keep going. This rule was bogus. So let's just keep going and see what happens. And so we can't confuse man's fences with God's cliffs. Also, when we turn these helpful suggestions, our personal fences, into mandatory commands for everybody, we're falling into the trap of legalism. When we take man's rules and say, this is for everybody, guys, that's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus rebuked them publicly. And so don't confuse these personal fences with God's commands. 
The second thing I want us to remember on your note sheet is that these extra fences are tools, not rules. They're tools to help us, not rules to live by. Rules are for everyone to follow all of the time, right? That's what a rule is. But tools are task-specific. A hammer's great for pounding in nails, but it doesn't help very much when you're painting the house. It's the wrong tool. It doesn't complete the job. And so what it comes down to is this. Is this tool, this personal fence, is it helping me accomplish my goal of drawing near to God and not giving into my flesh? If it is, great. Keep it for you personally. But if this personal fence or this tool that you're trying to use to grow spiritually, it's not helping, then why follow it? It's not helping. Find something else to help fight against your flesh. In our example of lust and social media, you might take a break from social media, but, but maybe t- pick it up later. Because tools you take as you need and you put them down when you're done with them. And so there's maybe a season in your life where some freedom in Christ leads you into temptation. And there might be another season in Christ where that freedom in Christ no longer leads you into temptation. That's why it's so important we understand that these are tools and not rules. Now, I want us to look at our next fill in the blank on our note sheet. It says, my freedom becomes folly when it becomes an idol. My freedom becomes folly when it becomes an idol. When we think about worshiping idols, we often imagine a primitive tribe bowing down and worshiping this carved image. And yet, idolatry can be much more discreet. I want us to consider the example of Abraham. Many of you know the story of Abraham, that God promised to give Abraham and his wife a son, even though they had been barren, And Sarah had passed the years of childbearing. This son would not only be born, but this son would become the father of a great nation. God promised to Abraham. Now, fast forward 25 years. They were old before. Now they're really old. And that son of promise is finally born. We read in Genesis chapter 21, verses 5 through 7. It says, Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac was born to a 100-year-old dad and a 90-year-old mom. Amazing. They finally got this child of promise. Now we just imagine Abraham holding his son, Isaac, as an infant, being so proud and so thankful for God's gift. We can imagine him playing with his toddler son, Isaac, through those years of learning to walk and just exploring the world. Imagine him playing with Isaac in the backyard, teaching him how to throw rocks and play with sticks and get stronger. See Isaac grow into a young man, a strong young man. I suggest to you that if anything could have become an idol in Abraham's life, it would have been his son Isaac. I don't mean that Abraham was tempted to 
bow down and worship his son. No, that's not what I mean. But I'm saying that Abraham loved his son more than anything else on the earth. He'd waited for him for so long. In fact, Abraham's name means father of many. You can imagine as he goes out and he meets people and he says, I'm Abraham. They're like, oh, father of many. How many kids do you have? None. If he had any idol, it would have been Isaac. And that's why God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We read in Genesis 22 in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God tested Abraham to see if he was willing to surrender that which he loved most in life. And you know the story. Abraham obeyed God. He took Isaac up there on the mountain, then he built the altar, and he had his son lay down willingly, and he's holding the knife to slay his son. And at the last minute, we read in Genesis 22, verse 12, And God said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's an extreme example. And yet Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son proved to God that Abraham loved God most. And so as you and I look at our freedoms in Christ, we should ask, do I love God more than my freedom? And if so, prove it. Prove it. Maybe you watch TV. Maybe you read novels. Maybe you hunt or fish. Maybe you play video games. Maybe you sleep in. Maybe you go shopping or garden or bake or you fill in the blank. None of these things are sinful in themselves. But any of these things can become idolatry if we love them more than God. And remember, Love is not a feeling or an emotion. Love is a choice. It's an action. Therefore, this is a suggestion, not a command. Therefore, it might be wise to occasionally put down your hobby, put down your freedom in Christ, and say, Lord, I just want to physically represent that I do love you more than my freedoms. I do love you more than my blessings in this life. What fascinates me about the story of Abraham and Isaac is not the fact that Abraham was willing to do it. What fascinates me is that God put Abraham through that turmoil when God already knew the answer. Do you ever think about that? God knows all things, right? He knows the end from the beginning, right? And so it says, God, in his answer to Abraham, now I know that you love me more than your son. And I say, well, didn't you already know? Well, sure he did. So why did God still make Abraham go through it if he already knew the answer? 
And I think we can ask the same question about us today. Why should I sacrifice non-sinful things just to prove my love for God? Why should I lay it down for a day or for an hour and go read my Bible instead? What good would that do? What good comes from our willingly sacrificing good or neutral things? And I suggest there's three good reasons, both of why Abraham had to go through it and why it's good for you and I to lay down our freedoms in Christ occasionally. First of all, it glorifies God. It glorifies God. Abraham was willing to give God his most precious treasure in this world. And because he was willing to do that, that was a greater sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, the more glory or worship God receives. When we choose to honor God more than our favorite blessings or our favorite freedoms, we're choosing to worship God with a more valuable praise. It's more valuable. Second, I believe God put Abraham through this so that Abraham would know his own heart. Abraham learned that day that, okay, I really am willing. I thought I was willing, but I really was. And when we willingly sacrifice good or neutral things, it reveals our heart to us. It reveals our heart to us. It's one thing to say, well, I can live without TV or the news for a day or a week or whatever. I can live without my cell phone. I don't need to check it. But it's another thing to actually sacrifice it, if only temporarily, to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to spend some time in prayer uninterrupted. Or, Lord, I'm going to spend some time in worship. And if you're anything like me, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And I know that your heart is like that because that's what the Bible tells us in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord. Only the Lord knows our heart. That means that often I can deceive myself. And I can say, Lord, this freedom of mine, this, this innocent pleasure, it's not a sin. I'm not addicted. I don't care about it. I still love you more. But then if I choose to take a break from that thing and I realize, man, I'm really thinking about that thing a lot more than I thought I would, I realize it had a higher place in my heart than I realized. Third, I believe God did this to Abraham so that Abraham was reminded to keep loving God most. When we choose to sacrifice earthly blessings or freedoms for the sake of time with the Lord, we are reminding ourselves. It's almost like we're, we're painting a message for our souls that says, love God most. Love God first. Love God in all things, in all areas. Love God in every corner of your heart. You know, in the Psalms, David would often write like he's speaking to himself. It's kind of weird, you know, but he's like, soul, praise the Lord. And we don't do that very often. We don't cry out to ourselves. But maybe we should. And say, hey, Jared, the real Jared, not your flesh, not your body, the real Jared, wake up. Stop living for the flesh but live for the Spirit. Stop living for yourself and live for the Lord. 
Jesus uses the example of loving money as an idol in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. In the New Living Translation, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. One of the ways that you and I can ensure that Jesus is our master not our flesh, not anything else, is by occasionally sacrificing those earthly blessings and pleasures and devoting time to Him and saying, Lord, help me to love You more. Help me to love You in everything. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to tally up the minutes of your day and say, well, I spent 10 minutes in the bathroom and only 9 minutes in my Bible. <gasps> No, I'm just saying, Lord, help me to be wise in your eyes as I look at what I do, as I look at how I'm living my life. And God, I want to be wise in your eyes. I want to please you. This idea of time leads us to our next point. My freedom becomes folly when it makes me irresponsible. My freedom becomes folly when it makes me irresponsible. Jesus tells us the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. It says, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. Now, I want us to notice that this man was not a fool for simply having wealth, nor was he a fool for saving for the future. This man was a fool for two reasons. First, he did not honor God with his blessings, specifically with his wealth. As verse 21 put it, he laid up treasure for himself, and he was not rich toward God. Second, this man was a fool because he lived for the temporary and not the eternal. As verse 19 put it, he sought to take it easy and eat and drink and be merry for many years. Now, please know, I am not condemning retirement. That's not what I'm saying. But if our blessings make us live for the temporary and not the eternal, then we need to fix our priorities. I'm not saying it's wrong to go on vacation. I'm not saying it's a sin to take a break. I'm not saying it's a sin to look forward to retirement where you don't have to work all the time. But I am saying that we need to live for the eternal and not the temporary. So here are some questions to ask ourselves. And I emphasize, ask ourselves. Because it's so easy to say, yeah, I know somebody that could really use this right here. They're sitting next to me. No, this is for you. And so, 
Do my freedoms in Christ hurt the relationships in my life? Do my freedoms in Christ hinder me from loving and serving my spouse or my children or my friends or my neighbors? Do my freedoms in Christ hinder me from my job or other responsibilities? Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 23 in the NIV, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Do my freedoms in Christ hinder me from obeying and pursuing Jesus? Then my freedom has become foolishness. I'm not saying you need to slit your freedom's throat. You might. But you might just need to reprioritize. You might just need to say, okay, maybe I need to put up a personal fence. Maybe I need to slow down on how much time and focus and energy I have on this thing. Because I know God's called me to do this, and I haven't really been living up to that. What is the Lord speaking to your heart? Now, I want to change gears a bit. And I want us to look at some helpful reminders. And here's the first one, again, on your note sheet. Only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. Guys, we can sacrifice all day long. We can put up extra fence after extra fence after extra fence. But at the end of the day, we're still sinners with sinful desires. Those fences don't fix our heart. They can be wise to put up, but they don't fix the big problem. In other words, somebody could stop watching movies and TV. They could delete all their social media. They could throw their iPhone in the river. They could even gouge out their eyeballs. And they could still struggle with lust every single day. Because it's a matter of our heart. It's a matter of what we're living for. Only God can change our heart. We read in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine or the trunk, neither can you unless you abide in me. I, Jesus says, am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The fruit that Jesus is talking about, it's pretty vague. But essentially, it means the fruit of becoming more like Jesus, less like ourselves. More like Jesus, less like the world. And so that fruit might be, well, I struggle with lust less. That fruit might be, I don't gossip anymore. That fruit might be my language is more godlike and less Satan-like. Jesus says, as we abide in Him, the Holy Spirit changes our heart. The more that we pray, the more that we read our Bible, the more that we worship, and the more that we, when the Holy Spirit says, Jared, what about this? You're not really obeying me here. And you say, okay, you can, you can have that too. I'll repent of that too. The more we respond in obedience, the more fruit that God is going to produce through us 
and the more Christ-like we'll become. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. Here's another helpful reminder. A rigid, sacrificial lifestyle won't earn us heaven. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the ones that sacrificed everywhere you looked. They were always in prayer, and they went out on the street corners to pray in public so that you knew, wow, they're praying all the time. And when they would give to the Lord, they would ring their bells and their trumpets and say, ding, 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 ding. Look at how much I gave the Lord. And you would say, wow, look at their sacrifice for God. But sadly, many of these Pharisees were confident in their sacrificial lifestyle to get them to heaven. They trusted in their works, attempting to earn their way to heaven, attempting to be good enough. They would say, well, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm way better than the most of you. They would say, I'm not perfect, but my good far outweighs my bad. And they would say, God is pleased with me. But in doing so, despite all their sacrifices, they missed salvation. We read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where it says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We can imagine having a cloth that represents our righteousness, our good works. And some of our cloths might be cleaner than others. And yet we hold that cloth up to the Lord and say, look, here's my righteousness. And Jesus takes our cloth and he holds it next to a pure white cloth. And we see, man, ours is just a filthy rag. Ours is hideous and stained and broken and ripped. And Jesus says, that's as good as it gets. The most holy, the most godly person you know, their righteousness in their works is but filthy rags compared to God. That's why God says it's not good enough. In fact, nobody's good enough. That's why I came down and I was good enough on your behalf. That's why I came down and I died on the cross to pay for your sin so that I can take your filthy rags and I'm going to put it where it belongs, in the garbage. And I'm going to clothe you with my rag, with my righteousness. I'm going to clothe you with my perfect son, my perfection. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we were saved and we went to heaven because we believed in Jesus and we did some sort of work, we would say, okay, here's Jesus' righteousness and here's mine too. God says, no. Now you're boasting in your works. It's me or nothing. And as we come to Christ, we humbly recognize, Lord, I can do nothing in my own strength except sin. I'm good at that. I can do that all day long. So, Lord, forgive me. And he will. Lord, save me. And he will. 
but he won't leave you that way. He'll fill you with his spirit and he'll begin to change you from the inside out. God invites us to come as we are. He doesn't require us to stop sinning or to change our hearts so that we can become Christians. Instead, he invites everybody to recognize that we are all sinners and we all fall short of God's glory and none of us live up to God's perfect standard. But God in his love says, I love you anyway. Come, trust in me. Don't just believe that I'm real, but say, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my master. And I'm trusting that on the day that I die, I'm going to go to heaven and be welcomed in. And you're going to look at me as if I'm blameless. But it's not because I was blameless. It's because you have paid for my sin in full. You've washed me white as snow. And you've chosen to remember my sins no more. That's amazing. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you'll be headed for heaven because you've received God's gift. And in the meantime, His Holy Spirit changes our hearts from the inside out. Finally, our last reminder. It's not about how you start, but how you finish. So press on toward Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, in the New Living Translation, Paul says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. Paul says, I'm striving for the Lord and I want to live for Him and I sacrifice and suffer for Him, but I'm not perfect. I've not achieved what God has for me, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul did not dwell on the past. It's a good thing, because he was a murderer. Paul began his race chasing down Christians, arresting them, and putting them to death, and saying, look, Lord, look at my rag. Look at how good I am for you. Until the day when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And suddenly Paul, his eyes got big, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What a terrible way to start the race, running in the wrong direction with all of your heart. And yet Jesus says, it doesn't matter how you start. I can take you where you are. But press on towards me. May we finish this race well. May we look at our lives, our lives, our hearts, and say, Jesus, where can I love you more in my life? What things aren't sinful in themselves, but what things might I be able to say, I could love Jesus better in this thing. I could honor God more in my life. I don't want us to get legalistic. I don't want us to say, well, you hunt this much and I hunt this much, so I'm better. No. I want us to be a church that says, I want to press on towards the prize, that upward calling 
that Jesus has called me to. And I want to live my life for him and for his glory and for his name. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you save us by your grace, not by our works, because all we have are filthy rags. And Lord, as we are here or we're listening online, Lord, if we've not yet made that decision to trust in you as our Lord and Savior, or maybe we've just been living for ourselves and we call you Lord every day, but we are actually our Lord. Lord, I pray today that we would surrender our heart to you. That we would say, God, forgive me. And if that's you today, I invite you, make that decision. Right now, between your heart and the Lord, to say, God, I surrender to you for the first time or all over again. And I say, Lord, forgive me for my sin and my selfishness. Forgive me for worshiping myself, for loving myself more than you. God, forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit and begin to change me from the inside out. Lord, for those of us who have made that decision, God, we need your Holy Spirit power. We need it. Because, God, we still have these sinful hearts that say, I want to do this. I want to serve me. And so, Lord, would you please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit right now. And as we look to you, Lord, we simply say, we're still broken, Lord. We're still sinful. But, God, would you help me to press on towards you? God, would you help me to say yes to that thing of obedience that you've put on my heart today. God, would you help me to surrender that much more all over again. And God, would you take our lives and use us for your kingdom and for your name and for your glory so that one day we can enter into your presence based on your righteousness and yet you will look at us with your mercy and with your grace and you will say, well done good and faithful servant. For you loved me and you served me. God, help us to be wise in your eyes. Who cares what the world thinks? Who cares what the church thinks? God, may we be wise in your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.